Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Monday, August 19th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, what a recession might do to the election, another Republican primary challenger is thinking about a run, an update on how King is doing in Iowa, and Booker preaches in Atlanta. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, the so-called crazy inverted yield curve. No, I'm not going to go all economics 101 here, but it is worth getting into this looming narrative around a recession and what that might do politically. There are many signs that a recession is coming, and in a sense, a recession is always coming. The questions are just how bad it will be and when it will occur. As more indicators of that impending recession start to pop up, politicians are looking at a recession in political terms, meaning would a recession benefit or hurt the sitting president? In general, at least historically, it tends to hurt. Reading here from Ronald Brownstein in The Atlantic, quote, About half or even slightly more of voters expressed support for Trump's management of the economy, but only 40 to 45 percent of them give him positive marks on his overall performance. That difference could be the tipping point between a coalition that places Trump close to the comfort zone for presidents seeking re-election, support from about half of Americans, and one that leaves him trying to secure a second term with positive marks from a much smaller circle. The only president since 1952 who sought re-election with approval ratings below 50%, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, and George H.W. Bush, all lost. End quote. In other words, if either the economy does decline or voters' perceptions of it decline, then that's probably trouble for the president. Right now, a sustained healthy economy has clearly helped him, and as that quote just suggested, there's data to back that up. So, okay, that's one thing, but what might this do to the field of primary candidates on the Democratic side? Well, for that, let's listen to Amy Walter writing for the Cook Political Report. Quote, If 2020 is consumed with talk of a possible recession, the candidate who voters feel is best suited to address it will have the upper hand. In many ways, Warren is well positioned for that moment. She has made the economy, specifically a critique of the current economic structure in this country, the centerpiece of her campaign and her career. She conducted groundbreaking work on personal bankruptcy. During the financial crisis, she was appointed chair of the Congressional Oversight Panel for the Troubled Asset Relief Program and set up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Not long after the markets closed on Thursday, Warren tweeted, The warning signs for another recession are flashing. We need to pay attention and act now while we still have time to avert a downturn. Biden, of course, can point to his tenure as vice president during the financial crisis. In 2012, Biden was fond of telling voters that he and Obama should be reelected because Osama bin Laden is dead and General Motors is alive. End quote. Walter suggests that if a recession happens, Democratic candidates who have less experience or less perceived experience managing the economy are likely to suffer. She cites an unnamed Democratic strategist who said that Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Senator Bernie Sanders might suffer in particular. I'll keep you posted as this narrative evolves. And next up, yesterday on Meet the Press, former South Carolina Governor and Representative Mark Sanford announced that he might announce a primary challenge to the sitting president. He would join a very slim field at the moment with really only former Governor Bill Weld as the other opponent to Trump. In an interview with Chuck Todd, Sanford said the discussions around a primary challenge to Trump began the day he lost the primary for his 2018 re-election to the House. 
The reason he lost it is that Sanford had been critical of Trump, so Trump endorsed his primary opponent, who then narrowly lost in the general election. Oddly, Sanford says the ultimate decision to run is up to his four sons. He says that if they tell him to go for it, he will, and he will make the decision by Labor Day. Currently, the voting among his sons is mixed. Okay, so who is Mark Sanford? Well, he served in the U.S. House from 1995 through 2001, then served as governor of South Carolina from 2003 to 2011, then went back to the House for 2013 through 2019. There were some rumblings back in 2008 that he might be Senator John McCain's running mate, though obviously that did not pan out. He is fiscally conservative, and most of his campaigns have revolved around dealing with government spending and the national debt. Let's listen to a clip from his longer interview on Meet the Press. There's a full video in the show notes. Listen in, and Chuck Todd speaks first. You probably aren't the best vehicle for this, but you're doing it... uh, Is there a better candidate out there? I'm sure there is. I'm sure there are a bunch of them. But, you know, this conversation began the day after my primary loss last June. Uh, A a friend called and said, God just cleared your calendar for a reason. I know what it is. You need to primary the president. I'm like, are you completely That was literally the first 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 response after losing, because of Trump. Trump basically cost you your re-election. But I said, you know, that's preposterous. That's crazy. But long story short, there's been a drumbeat over the last year of people who I admire, who are not crazy, who are very thoughtful, saying we need to have this conversation. All right. I bring you up. Here's what some of your former um, staffers and allies have said. Uh, um, Matt Moore, the former uh, South Carolina uh, Party chairman, he says it's almost impossible to primary sitting precedent successfully. Your former spokesperson said it just doesn't seem to be the most serious minded way to get back into the conversation. Um, But he calls it definitely the splashiest. Is this a vanity project? Absolutely not. I mean, the idea of going out and possibly being a human pinata uh, is hardly a vanity Because you are. You right, know how right, the pre- right, president's right, going right, to right. go after every one of your personal right, foibles. Right. You know that. And, and so I'd say no, but it is a project on behalf of my four sons because the route that we're going right now not only has implications in terms of the Republican Party going forward, but real implications in terms of every young person's ability to sustain the American dream. If you look at the debt and deficit numbers right now, we are in troubling waters that have not only implications in terms of the economy here and now and what's going to happen next, but frankly, their ability to build wealth over time. Why do you stay in the Republican Party? Because I'm a Republican. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, a lot of people said, well, if you're going to run, run as independent. And I'm like, no, I'm a Republican. The Republican Party has a great lineage of historically doing some great things right, but it's gone off the tracks of late. We have a cult of personality right now that is at odds with the people who've worked for years and years in the vineyard trying to make a difference in advancing the conservative cause. Um, it's unlikely you would succeed in actually winning the nomination. I mean, the process is already being, you, some people would call it rigged, but yeah. the, he's in charge of the party. So sure. they're, they're, they're scrapping caucus. There might not even be a primary allowed in your state. Could, yeah, right? You see so, what happened in Nevada with South right. Carolina. Yeah, You're not going to be allowed to even compete for delegates. So what does success look like for your candidacy? Uh, you can compete for ideas, though. I mean, if we begin a national conversation on where in the world are we going with unprecedented levels of debt, unprecedented levels of deficit going forward, unprecedented levels of spending, where are we going as a Republican Party in terms of, of what comes next? If we were to have a conversation on trade and what it means, and, you know, whether it's in the port in Charleston or whether it's in New Hampshire or a whole host of other places across this country, I think it's a needed debate. And, and I think you know, the more the merrier. I'm glad Bill Wells in. Another dozen. I'm sure there are much better candidates out there than I am. But we've got to have this conversation as a nation and as Republicans. 
There are a few things in that clip that we need to dig into just a bit. First, you hear Sanford saying he doesn't even think he is the best man for the job, but he's been talking about this possible primary challenge for months now, so I think the odds of him actually announcing are pretty high. I don't think he has anything to gain by going on talk shows and saying this stuff if he does not intend to run. He has also said that if he fails in that run, he would just go back to the business world. Okay, so that's the first thing that he openly says he's not the best candidate. Weird, but okay, points for honesty, I guess. Second, Todd mentions personal foibles. Well, that's a reference to a scandal from 2009. Sanford went missing in June that year. He was governor at the time, but his location was unknown to his wife, his family, and his staff, and to the state police force that was supposed to be protecting him. This went on for six days, and I remember this being a big, weird national news story, like, literally, where did the governor of South Carolina go? The common theory was that he'd gone hiking on the Appalachian Trail because he had mentioned that possibility to some of his staff beforehand, but nobody on the trail had seen him, and long story short, he was actually in Argentina conducting an extramarital affair. Yeah. And when he got back to the States, he held a press conference immediately and admitted it. He did not resign as governor, but he did lose his leadership position as the head of the Republican Governors Association. He later successfully ran for the House again. The last thing is that even though Sanford is critical of Trump, he votes with Trump very often on substantive issues while in the House, and he is on record as saying if Trump is the nominee, he will vote for him. So while Sanford is right that, quote, you can compete on ideas, end quote, his candidacy at this point looks, at best, like a mild protest. All right, let's face it, hiring is a challenge, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. It's a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates, and that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash primary. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans through thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, Election Ride Home listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash primary. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash P-R-I-M-A-R-Y. One last time, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash primary. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Well, let me set the scene. You're tracking an election, you're not 100% sure whether things are going to turn out the way you might want, and meanwhile you have a life, perhaps a job, maybe school, you know, the world and stuff. If you're feeling a tinge of stress, I don't blame you. I feel it too. And the tool I use to work with that feeling is an app called Simple Habit. Simple Habit is an app to help you meditate or just tune in to some calming sounds. For example, there is an hour-long recording of sounds from the Oregon coast. I love the Oregon coast. I would rather be at the Oregon coast right now, but but you know, I gotta work. So what do I do? I turn on Simple Habit, I listen, and if I've got five minutes, I go through a guided relaxation session. Simple Habit is free to use. There are hundreds of sessions right in there for free, but there are thousands more sessions and those cool nature recordings if you plop down just a few bucks. 
I want you to go to simplehabit.com slash ride. The first 50 listeners who sign up for a paid plan there will get 30% off. Now, you got to use that link. It's the first link in the show notes. Again, that is simplehabit.com slash ride to get the discount and let them know you came from this show. So one last time, the first 50 listeners who go to simplehabit.com slash ride are going to get 30% off and feel a little bit less stressed out. Last week, I talked about Representative Steve King and his appalling comments about sexual violence as a driver of population growth. That was, as we discussed, during a campaign event. So, how's he doing now? Well, in an event Saturday morning in Grundy County, Iowa, King gave a town hall to an audience of one. (laughs) Literally one. Technically, there was a second person sitting in the room, but that was King's intern who was paid to be there. The one person who showed up was Jessica Birch, a student at the University of Northern Iowa. Reading here from an article in Starting Line by Pat Reinard, quote, She arrived to a peculiar scene. Out of over 12,000 people that live in Grundy County, Birch was the only one to show up to King's Forum. It was just odd, because I don't know what the record of the world's smallest town hall is, but one person, I think, has to be it, Birch told Starting Line in an interview this morning, end quote. The article is linked in the show notes, as always, and it's an interesting read in particular because of how Birch sees her civic responsibility in this election. At various points in the article, she expresses frustration at being the only person who bothered to show up to actually listen to King and talk to him about what matters to her. And by the way, she's a Democrat. She opposes this candidate, but you know, when somebody comes to a town hall in your area, you go. That's part of how you engage in the political process. One more quote from the story, and this is a direct statement from Birch. Quote, As a young Democrat who's trying her best, please don't dismiss us all. Some of us care. Some of us show up. End quote. So yeah, let's hear it for showing up. I mean, really, a lot of politics on the internet is loud and brash and super disconnected from the reality of going to speak in person with a candidate on a Saturday morning. And because we're still in the primary season, that is a real opportunity that we have right now. We can go and see and speak with our potential representatives, and kudos to Birch for doing that. The kicker on this story is at the end of the event, though Birch had been civil throughout, she declined to be photographed with King. When the newspaper asked her why, Birch said that she intends someday to run for public office and does not want a photo of herself shaking hands with King to exist. Last Friday and Saturday, five Democratic primary candidates participated in the Black Church Presidential Candidate Conversation Series held in Atlanta. Featured speakers were Booker, Buttigieg, Castro, Sanders, and Warren. Sponsored by the Black Church Pack, it was a specifically Christian event and focused on Black millennial voters. I watched a few clips from the event, and this one really jumped out at me. It is Booker speaking to an audience that's on their feet. Listen in. I believe... As Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things, all things, but y'all, I got to call it out. It says I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. Now, Christ does not strengthen you to sit on the sidelines. Christ does not strengthen you to sit on the couch. This is not a spectator sport. Martin Luther King said it best when his era, in his moral moment, he said we have to repent in our day and age, not just for the vitriolic words and violent actions of the bad people, but the appalling silence and inaction of the good people. And so I want to call the faith community together because faith without works is... Faith without works is... And we need 
this nation back to life. There is too much death. There is too much darkness. And if the faith community does not lead, we will never make it to the promised land. Yeah. And those were his opening remarks before they got into Q&A. It is fair to say that Booker was connecting there in a way that I just did not see from the other candidates, or at least not in the clips that they posted. I also want to offer some context to a few of the biblical things going on there so you know what he's talking about in the context of this audience. I know not everybody studied this stuff, and I'm not an expert either, but here's a little context to fill it in. First, Booker cites Philippians 4.13. The full verse there is, quote, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, end quote. It comes in the context of the Apostle Paul essentially saying he knows that life has its ups and downs and he's accepted that, and through his faith he carries on. Okay, and the other verse that Booker uses as a call and response is James 2.26, which reads, quote, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also, end quote. The meaning there, while there is definitely a bunch of real context and actual scholarship, is basically, it's okay to have faith alone, but it's preferable to get off your butt and do something about it. And the final thing here is to give some context to the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. quote. The full context of that, again, is instructive, and I want to read some of what King had to say here. Quote, The hour has come for everybody, for all institutions of the public sector and the private sector, to work to get rid of racism. And now, if we are to do it, we must honestly admit certain things and get rid of certain myths that have constantly been disseminated all over our nation. One is the myth of time. It is the notion that only time can solve the problem of racial injustice. And there are those who often sincerely say to the Negro and his allies in the white community, why don't you slow up? Stop pushing things so fast. Only time can solve the problem. And if you will just be nice and patient and continue to pray, in a hundred or two hundred years, the problem will work itself out. There is an answer to that myth. It is that time is neutral. It can be used whether constructively or destructively. And I am sorry to say this morning that I am absolutely convinced that the forces of ill will in our nation, the extreme rightists of our nation, the people on the wrong side, have used time much more effectively than the forces of goodwill. And it may well be that we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, Wait on time. End quote. That was from March 31st, 1968. Well, that is all for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter at Chris Higgins. Okay, the show is running long today, so I'm going to keep this end part short. I am digging into the New York Times Magazine's 1619 feature. It's super long, so that might take me a week on its own. If you haven't seen it, it's the last link in the show notes, and I think it's a vital long read for basically all Americans. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow.